What do you think of when you think of sandalwood? To me, what comes to mind is wisdom, tradition, ceremony, healing, connection, strength, and also patience. And when I smell sandalwood essential oil, I experience a rich, sweet, really smooth and creamy wood aroma that has a warmth and depth to it that immediately calms me down and makes me feel taken care of. Sandalwood is steeped in tradition and custom and ceremony, and of course, healing in many cultures around the world. In fact, sandalwood is often cited as one of the most expensive woods in the world because it's so highly prized for its many uses. India used to be the world's biggest producer of sandalwood, but due partly to its over-exploitation and lack of conservation, in the 21st century, the market has been overtaken by Australia. So I got out my proverbial Rolodex of contacts and reached out to someone who's actively working in the Australian sandalwood industry now. Someone who truly appreciates its history, what it means to the indigenous people of Australia, and who understands the urgency of conservation and sustainability of this precious aromatic plant. My guest today is Guy Vincent, CEO of Dutchin Sandalwood Oils, a Western Australian-based sandalwood oil distillation company that's 50% Indigenous-owned. We talk in detail about the significance of that partnership and the importance of collaboration for mutual benefit, as well as many other aspects of the sandalwood trade in Australia. But really, I wanted to bring Guy on for another reason as well. You see, Guy's also an aromatherapist and a perfumer who's worked for the likes of Perfect Potion, Aromatherapy Associates, and Estee Lauder's Aveda brand. We talk about his highly scent-filled life's journey that got him to where he is today. Spoiler alert, I'm really jealous. So let's get started. Let's go down under and enjoy my conversation with Guy Vincent. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Kagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. Hello, Guy. I want to welcome you to An Aromatic Life. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. I reached out to you because I really want to talk about, obviously, we're going to talk about our sense of smell because that's what the podcast is all about. And we'll do that in relationship to the work that you're doing now with sandalwood, and which is a material that we all love dearly, but has had some, over the years has had some issues with sustainability and conservation and all the rest. And you're doing some great work there and you're doing some great work with the indigenous people of Australia. So we're gonna get into all of that, but I thought we could start with a simple question that I like to ask all of my guests. <laughs> to start. And I think it's a simple question. It might not be simple for you, but I wanted to ask you, when I say sense of smell, what comes to mind? Well, you're right. And it's not, not a simple question. Um, it's complex in so many ways. 
I would like to think about this in in a way that reflects the complexity that it that sense of smell is. What it means to me, sense of smell means to me, the senses, we use our senses in life to guide us, um, to, to find out where we're going and what we're, what we're doing. We like, to, we like to see where we're going. We like to feel the world around us. We like to, to hear the, the voice of reason. Um, and with sense of smell, it's the same. We, we sense where we're going. We can smell what we want. We can define who we are with our sense of smell by uh, understanding what's our playthings. What do we use to, to enrich our lives, uh, whether it be in perfume or, or body products, cosmetics. Um, we, we smell what we like and we dislike. We, we are drawn to the foods that we want to consume or, or the drinks that we want, want to imbibe. We do this with a sense of smell. So for me... The sense of smell is another guiding principle of our whole life and what we do and who we are. So it's, it's a path through which we navigate our life and uh, define our personalities and how we define what is right and wrong. That's how ingrained and, and deep the sense of smell is. That's really wonderful. Thank you. I think that's really important and so true it is really ingrained in everything we do and how we connect the world with the world around us isn't it yeah definitely i think there's uh, it's overlooked oh, because yeah. it's one of it's one of those background things it's kind of when people ask me why can't i smell this or why don't why don't i smell that perfume i'm wearing anymore it's it it turns we tune it out we we really easily tune it out um Working in an office, people, for those of you who remember working in, the, in an office. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, may be, it may be the sound of the air handling system, the heating or the cooling, that hum in the background, you tune that out. Yeah. And the sense of smell, we tune a lot of it out. We choose not to, we to choose focus on it. Yeah. To fo not to focus on it. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Well, let me ask you, now that you've given that wonderful explanation, tell me when you were young, can we go back to sure. the little guy when he was young? Sure. <laughs> Growing up in Australia, correct? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, tell me, did you connect with your sense of smell when you were little? I mean, you've had such a career surrounded by smell, similar to me, right? That yeah. I have to admit, I did not grow up thinking about my sense of smell it didn't come to me till much later when I was working in in the industry but right before that did you connect a lot with, with your oh, very much so oh you did very much so yeah I engaged with it really early and and my memories are formed in equal parts with visions and sounds and smells uh um you know, growing up in Australia, there's, we have this special... I grew up in central Victoria, um, which is kind of north of Melbourne, for those okay. of you who know their geography. And, um, and growing where I grew up, there's this ubiquitous smell of eucalyptus. Everyone kind ah. of knows this, this eucalyptus. So that, again, that forms the background noise. So you turn that off. And during the, the winter, the early winter heading into spring, you would get the, the wattles, the blooming, the bright yellow wattles, which are known as mimosa around the world. You know, oh, those, okay. the puffy yellow flowers would come out with all their different 
anisaldehyde and, and, uh, and type smells. Um, so you get that. So I can, the smell of spring and I was, a, I'm a, my birthday's October and, and the smell of um, all of those sorts of things um, coming out or even earlier for, for the mimosa, they, the joy of that is ingrained in my memory. Um, and it's some of some of the most earliest smells of my childhood, uh, earliest memories of my childhood are, are smells. Oh, that's wonderful. That's so nice to hear. So those are the, your most memorable ones. But did you then have that love of smelling things and having smells around you? Did, is that what informed you to then start? I think you started in aromatherapy first. Is that correct? Take me through your smell journey a little bit. Like, well, how okay, well, well, maybe we can start a little bit earlier than that. I mean, because you've mentioned childhood, something that I'm really interested in because I often, often think about this, right? So my earliest memories were, especially those fond memories like holidays and so forth, but even school. I mean, I remember the smell of my leather little backpack, you know, one of those cool little things you'd see a Paddington bear would wear. I have one of those square <laughs> little leather backpacks with buckles on it. And the smell of that of old sandwiches and apples and rotting apples because kids leave stuff in their bags, you know, I, and combined with the leather, that's, that's me in little buckled up shoes at, at pre-primary school going to school, you know. I remember that distinctly. I remember going on holidays and vacations where, the ubiquitous eucalyptus melding into the background, but the smell of turned earth going on on camping trips where you're digging to plant pegs or um, hot sun on canvas releasing, releasing that aroma. Yeah. Um, we used to camp next to a river, so the smell of river smells of sand, um, of fresh flowing, of algae. Um, and uh, you we dig latrines toilets out the back there was no toilet so you dig your own hole so the smell of turned earth combined with all sorts of things and I'm not just talking about the lovely smells I'm talking about the the full spectrum of all those smells whether it be <laughs> good and bad fe- good and bad fecal smells or dead animal in the bush yeah, uh, yeah. you know um a fish dead fish you know all those things I would really loved them and connected with them and I didn't know what that meant but I connected with them and they formed this, this um, kaleidoscope in which I navigated my life. And so I got to 18 and I didn't know what to do really. I like creating things. I like making things. I liked science, um, but I was a poor student. I was easily distracted and I didn't do well, and I, I didn't know what to do. So I wasn't going to go off to university to study journalism, which is what I was accepted into. Um, I like to write, I like to create, but I didn't know if I wanted to do that. And, and I apprenticed as a brewer mm. to make beer in a small pub in my hometown in Bendigo in central Victoria. And I, I apprenticed to make it was just small stuff like pub brewery, which is big now, but back then it was virtually unheard of. So I started to make things and I went off to study brewing and winemaking and, and I was incredibly good at olfactory skill sets ah. and taste. So I could, I could taste the amount of alcohol in a beer without 
chemically validating that. I, I understood the difference between the pear esters and the apple esters on the top note of an ale compared to um, those hop notes in a, in a lager. Um, so I had a very, very good sense of smell. I, I got to about 21 and realized that I loved that industry far too much. I would be an old drunken man with a terrible <laughs> liver <laughs> if I continued on in that industry. And I traveled, as most Australians do, when you get to about 21, you just disappear from Australia, go travel around. And I went ah. to, to Europe and Africa and I do all these different crazy things. And, um, and I came back to Australia and I don't really want to continue on in some mass market brewery where it didn't matter matter if the brewery was making beer or straw hats or toilet seats so that it's just money right um and that was the industry so i went off and studied um something that i i, I was enthralled by which was health i was into my health and well-being um so i went and studied natural medicine and herbal medicine and massage therapy and body work i like that sort of thing and and one of one of these courses and I'd never heard of it before in my life was this thing called aromatherapy uh -huh. so here was this aha moment where here's a modality that's good for you makes you feel better and has all these amazing smells so being smell obsessed from a child it was that was a breakthrough moment for me Okay. So carrying around the essential oils uh, and just opening the box of those and just whiffing them in and, and trying to understand all of those different ones. So I got a bit of obsessed with that and asked my lecturer loads and loads of questions, sat down the front, was the annoying one, was shooting my hand in the air. <laughs> and he kind of got to a point where he said, Guy, uh, I'll give you a job in my uh, aromatherapy business if you shut up. Interesting. Um, and so I went and worked with, with Sal Battaglia at The Perfect Potion. Oh, he yeah, I love Sal. Such a great guy. Yeah. yeah. So Sal was one of my early lecturers and a very big influence in my life. Um, and I thank him profoundly. And I, because I had this brewing background and manufacturing background, he could use me to some degree in his quality assurance and helping him in his factory and making things. Um, and uh, I got a lot out of it. So I, I went pretty much into that manufacturing side of the aromatherapy, filling bottles of essential oil, making creams and lotions, uh, applying the essential oils to them. I did do a little bit of therapy on the side, but I, I didn't do well with people. I was a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more directed than it should have been. Um, and I really loved that creative science. So I kind of grew up in that and making things in the, the periphery of the cosmetics industry, which was the aromatherapy industry, this crossover of doing and trying to use the oils for health and well-being. Um, and I just loved more and more. How do you create the, the beautiful harmony of scent yes. where you combine multiple things together that then convey some sort of a messaging system, whether it's just pure pleasure or is it uh, aromatic medicinal value or hopefully the Nirvana moment, a combination of those two. And so I was, I was really fixed on that. And then I, I started studying um, with through a, a program that was based out of Thailand, Perfumers World with Stephen Douthwaite um, in his early um, parts of perfumery course. So I went off to 
um, studying with him and, and it got to a stage where I knew I had to learn more. So I sold everything I owned, my wow. furniture, my car, everything, put it all in a backpack and then started traveling. So I got to Bangkok and worked with Stephen there, did his course. He, he needed some assistance in the aromatherapy business. So I stayed a little longer. I got some more work with him, perfumery. And then from there, I wanted to see where were these things grown and what, what were they doing? Yeah. So I was taking canoe trips, uh, boat trips up to Mekong to try and find where the, the into Lao to try and find where the benzoin came from or um, and where were the medicinal plants. So we go into these little villages and speak to the elders and ask them, what did you use for, for bites or wounds or whatever? So I did a bit of that, but ultimately I wanted to see where the essential oils and same self came from. So I, I, I lobbed myself into um, Bulgaria and went from distillery to distillery, from roses to lavender, mainly looking at oh. where did the roses come from. So I hitchhiked around and with the, the, the wonderful warm uh, hospitality of many different people in Bulgaria, I got to learn quite a bit. So I continued that on into the south of France and lobbed into to, to, um, to grass. Well, I went to actually um, grass and then I... I went to up to Paris and I tried to follow the route of Grenouille and uh, perfume, <laughs> the story of a murder, because that yeah. really has a big influence in my life too, because I was so fascinated by smell. But I worked around grass and, and I had a, a list of, of names um, from my days of buying essential oils. Um, when I was at Perfect Potion, I also worked with essential therapeutics with Ron Goober in Melbourne and in essence in Melbourne with three aromatherapy companies I'd worked for prior to this. Um, and I, I just knocked on doors in, in France. And I, I don't speak French. It's, was, it's, <laughs> so it was terrible. I'd, I'd never get any, any response saying, can I see how you do things? Can I work with you? And they go, excuse-moi. <laughs> Um, and so it got to a, it got to a place called Agnel with Veronique Agnel, who who you know again stars aligned. I'm very very lucky to lean on people who supported strangers, uh, <laughs> and ended up by working in their lab and living at the distillery, and they were del distilling lavender and lavender and cypress and and frankincense and all sorts of things out of that, and I was fortunate to live in a little room virtually above the distillery. So I was surrounded 24 seven during the Lavendin campaign and working in a lab, combining um, ingredients to sell into the perfumery market. So that was really, you know, adulterating essential oils and it's as it known in the aromatherapy market, but mm. in perfumery, it's just making to a grade a quality of whatever it is That's that everyone right. knows that it's either natural naturally derived synthetic or whatever but everyone knows what it is and it's it's made for price so I did that for some time for a summer um playing petonk and drinking pastis and and uh and mixing essential oils having a good time um, really having a good time it was magical <laughs> southern France uh in the summer um but you know visas what they are I couldn't stay there so I I lobbed over to London 
and uh, ended up getting a job with Aromatherapy Associates um, with Geraldine and Sue at Aromatherapy Associates, a wonderful brand in the spa area. They'd been around um, since, since uh, Michelin Nassier, uh, who they learned from, and um, since the 60s, and uh, had, you know, clients like royalty and literally and I got to work with them and help in their development and their technical management and creating products and we worked on brands for um, Mandarin Oriental or the Fairmont Group or you know all this top-end spa stuff uh, which was wonderful again that crossover between the beautiful aromatic landscape uh, of making smelling beautiful things, but also that medicinal quality of, of trying to produce a fabulous, fabulous uh, um, well-being response. So I did that for a while, and then um, Estee, the Estee Lauder companies with Aveda um, came knocking on my door and said that Koichi Shiazawa, the perfumer who'd been there for twenty odd years looking to retire we need a replacement would you like to apply for that position um and <laughs> i said yes uh and fortunately my submissions uh, won and and i did i interviewed very well and i took the position at Aveda as the as the lead perfumer and was there for 10 years i love that uh, nice. um and what and through through Aveda and you know, it's a big company and, and buying a lot of raw materials and making a lot of things. And I learned a lot. And I was exposed to, through the Lauder Group, I was exposed to all sorts of fabulous um, relationships, whether it be with uh, Firminish or IFF or Juvedin, um and yeah. a variety of different um, companies who I helped out with the, uh, you know, a little bit of the aromatics because I was a natural specialist. I was able to help out with other brands like... Um, Joe Malone London or Frederick Marle or, or by Killian. I mean, I didn't perfume for them by no, any stretch of the imagination, but it was just nice to be around them as part of the fragrance group within the Estate Lauder companies. Uh, and so after 10 years of that, um, and we had a, a, at the Lauder group, we had a great relationship with Australian sandalwood oil out of Western Australia. And there was a company who was trying to develop uh, out of Western Australia called Dutch Arn Sandalwood Oils, and it was a long time coming in a relationship with Stephen Birkbeck, who was a fantastic, a pillar in the community of Australian sandalwood. Um, and we got to support Dutch on sandalwood. And I, through that process of buying the oils from them and understanding who Dutch on sandalwood oils are, I said, um, I think we should make a, a documentary about this. This is just such a great story to tell about the relationship of Indigenous Australians and Sandalwood and uh, selling into the world leader like the Estee Lauder companies and selling into world leading perfume companies all around the world from way out into the, the Gibson Desert, one of the remotest places on the planet through to Paris and New York. Uh, we should make a story about this. So the Lauder group said, yes, and with some fabulous support from the communications group and the Estee Lauder group, we brought a, a film crew out and we made a short documentary about the relationship, um, the Estee Lauder companies and Dutch Arn Sandalwood Oils. And, and through that process, Dutch Arn Sandalwood Oils were looking to grow. They looked to look needing someone to take the company forward. 
in a, a CEO role. And I said, well, that, that should be me. I mean, I'd love to work and help Indigenous people. I'd love to come back and live in Australia after 20-something years living <laughs> abroad. Um, and the stars aligned once again. And, and, and uh, I started with the Dutch Arms Sandalwood Oils Company as uh, CEO a little over a year ago. And here we are today talking about it. Wow, wow, wow. Can I just say I want your life? <laughs> Love. I don't know. No, no. When I hear what you did in you know, South of France, you know, Thailand, I don't know, the whole thing. It just sounds wonderful. It just sounds like it sounds like you're, you're, the stars aligned for you and you kind of just found your way through your nose, really. Yeah, well, I'd like to say that, did. There was a lot of toughness. You know, the, the reason why I left Australia, not because I don't love it here, is because there isn't any perfumery industry and I was kind of hitting the ceiling of what I was doing. So I had to, I was forced to leave and find, and, and that was the hardest thing to yeah. do is to get, teach myself. I mean, I look at it now, I've, well, I've hired a perfumer here, Daniel Yeo, who's, who's ex-Sipka trained, you know, he's done his master's in the Sipka and he's a fabulous perfumer. We're developing a perfumery side to our business. And I would have given my left arm to have that yeah. knowledge. You know, as a perfumer, uh, I've got a lot of experience and I think I know uh, quite a thing about creating great perfumes, but um, I'm not technically a brilliant perfumer. I haven't got a lot of breadth. I'm kind of like that musician who plays the one sort of set um, over and over again. You know, the Beach Boys have their sound and that's what they stick to. I've got my formulas and that's what I stick to. I know my way around about certain things. But if you say I want a $3 cherry aroma to make into a floor cleaner, I can't do that for you, you know. Um, But in the naturals and making things that communicate natural naturality, if there's such a word, I can do that. So that life was hard and I hit a lot of walls and I would not encourage it at all. Those days on the road with no money, hitchhiking between towns sound romantic. Yeah, and romantic, but it's not. (laughs) It's scary. It's yeah. cold, it's horrible, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's romanticized to some degree, but uh, no, it's not the way. I think people stay in school, kids stay in school, <laughs> learn things. Tell me briefly, and then we'll get into the sandalwood stuff because there's so much to talk about in sandalwood. But just since you have this experience for so many years in aromatherapy, how much do you think the aromatherapy field has changed, or what does that word mean to you? When you think of aromatherapy, oh, what do you think? I- I I reflect upon this quite a lot. I think there's this beautiful side of aromatherapy, which is um, forged by true aromatherapists who have a great desire to help people. Mm -hmm. And they're healers. And I actually, I think there's a lot in the essential oils. The oils can facilitate a lot, but they're not the healers. The people are. Um, And they use the tools at their disposal to heal people and to help people. And those people are healers no matter what. If they were in South America and they'll be using, applying leaves to skin, um, they'd be doing that. Um, And so I think that's fantastic. And I think those people use the tools that they have, whether it be massage and aromatherapy and the oils to generate health and well-being. I think that's amazing. Um, But then 
rubbing on uh, a cream with a little bit of so-called lavender in it mm. is not truly aromatherapy. It's pleasant. Don't get me wrong. It's pleasant and it will have an effect to uplift your mood, but you could get that through a fragrance that contains a lavender-style smell that you, prefer, you link yourself to. Um, so I think it's been um, bastardised, that word, um, but not to a detriment. I still think it has its place in the world. And I, I don't bemoan it falling from some sort of lofty grace. Uh, I just think that it's, it's broad, it's, it's had its time, and those people who are really true to aromatherapy will always be there. And those brands that have used it to try and sell product um, I, I don't think it's completely cynical in a commercial sense. I think whether we marketers want, want to do best, we want to have a nice place in the home where you sit and you smell things and that makes you feel better. And I think that's, that's noble too. Um, calling it aromatherapy, whether it's synthetic or natural, um, is still aromatherapy in my view. It's just, the, it's like a spectrum. That's right. um, you'll get a little bit of uh, aromatherapy from a synthetic perfume in a reed diffuser. You'll get a bit and you'll get a lot if you take a massage with someone who's got loads of experience as an aromatherapist. That's the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. So it's all on a spectrum. It's all good um, if the intent is good. It's married to intent. Hey, I just wanted to let you know about a great free resource I have available if you're interested in harnessing your sense of smell to support your well-being. Just go to the link in this episode's show notes to grab this free resource, which will explain how smelling can support you just as much as other things you do to stay well, like exercising and eating healthy meals. I share smelling exercises you can do with essential oils, everyday aromatic items in your home, as well as nature itself to help you identify scents that you respond to most that can help lift your mood, reduce stress, and begin to shift your body back to center. So after you listen to this episode, grab my free resource and learn to smell to be well. So let's get started with sandalwood. Can we talk about sandalwood? Such sure. A wonderful, such a wonderful product. So sandalwood is obviously steeped in tradition and custom in many parts of the world, including Australia. So can you talk about what sandalwood means to Australians and what role it played in people's lives in terms of health and well-being? What does sandalwood well, mean to Australians? I think we need to talk about species when you talk about sandalwood, first of okay. all. So because a lot of people see sandalwood, its common name is ubiquitous. So you have Santalum album, which is basically known as Indian sandalwood, which is the tropical species. Um, then we have the Australian native species, which is Santalum spicatum, um, which is um, what we here at Dutch on Sandalwood Oils distill and turn into sandalwood oil. And there are other species in New Caledonian, there's out of Hawaiian, there's African, there's a variety of different things that are called sandalwood. But I think I'll, I'll just specifically talk about Australian native because that's what we produce and what's what really why I'm here and what doing what I do. Um, so that's Santalum spicatum sandalwood native Australian sandalwood oil has been steeped in tradition, especially from what I know here, which is in the western 
Western Australia, and, and I particularly work with the Matu and Wangai nations. And that's been part of their culture for thousands and thousands of years, um, since the dawn of their time, and is incredibly important and its connection to the spiritual identity. Um, to burn sandalwood and smell sandalwood in a ritual sense has been used for focusing. Um, if there's big decisions need to be made, um, people would get together, sit in a circle and talk and smell burning sandalwood. So it's kind of like a, a, a very much a linking to their identity. Um, I don't know a lot about it from Indigenous use. It's Indigenous property. You know, I can't come in and say, tell me how you did all of this, and then I go off and market it. That's yeah. not right. That's right. There's certain traditions and customs Indigenous people need to keep within their own realm to continue their cultural um, cultural identity and their practices going, and that, that's the secret to them. Why should I know about it as a non-Indigenous Australian? Uh, I do know that the sandalwood nuts themselves, which have a high level of fatty acid oil, were pressed and used for skin healing. It contains an ingredient called zimanianic acid that has helped with uh, skin healing or hair growth and all sorts of things. Um, it's also used to eat as a food, um, but don't eat too much apparently because it makes you feel a bit sick because they're so rich. <laughs> so the kids love to eat it, but don't eat too much. Um, it's kind of like candy. And, um, but the essential oil, which comes from the, the smell of the, the heartwood, uh, has been used spiritually for all sorts of things for thousands and thousands of years. We also know that sandalwood is, there's a lot of illegal trade being done in sandalwood. Mm -hmm. Traditionally in, in India, I think a lot of it is. But would, oh, would, and, and of Australia. And Australia too. as well. So tell me yeah. a little bit about that. What, what's happening well, here? Yeah, because it's highly revered in so many cultures for use in incense, especially um, less so for the essential oils and making into cosmetics and perfumes, that's a little bit more controlled, but uh, I believe, especially for, for burning, there always will be a price to pay for sandalwood and everyone trying to undercut each other. So um, to have to, to drive into the into the sandalwood forest if you have a bit of a knowledge about what it is and cut down a tree and then offload it into um, especially into Asia to sell there's always going to be a, a trade for that so it needs to be completely regulated um, and so the harvest of any sandalwood whether it be from traditional lands or from government lands which is known as crown lands or even um, private plantations it needs to be controlled and every uh, kilogram of it needs to be needs to have a license to harvest and a, a license to transport. So there is some of that to try and reduce the poaching, illegal poaching, and it's a threatened species. It's yeah. Um, yeah. in the wild. It's a threatened species. There, I I admit that the Australian government I think harvests too much of it, and it needs it's not done in the right way. And we're calling for a reduction in the overall harvest. Um, to make sure that the, the species is not threatened because it is threatened by another other reasons from um, feral animals that um, uh, that uh, eating small seed dispersing animals which are tiny little cute australian native marsupials that kind of act like squirrels and depositing seeds around 
Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, feral dogs and cats that have been introduced species are eating eating these poor things. So, oh. um, and you know, there's goats, feral goats, feral donkeys, um, grazing saplings that are growing. Um, there's too much too much um, pastoral leases where there's cattle um, grazing in vast areas of Australia and and uncontrolled. So there's not enough management, in my view, um, of wild Australian sandalwood. Um, but and and combine that with poaching, and, and you really have a, uh, a, a a species that could is in decline. Fortunately, the the fines for poaching now in Australia are really really quite high, okay. and so this mm-hmm. poaching has diminished significantly. There's been a number of cold cases, and uh, but around the world, wherever there's sandalwood growing, there's always someone trying to make a quick buck, and so poaching will continue, and it needs to be halted as yeah. best as anyone can yeah so what do you if, if somebody's buying sandalwood from australia there's certain things that they can look for to to ensure that they're getting the most legitimate source i mean if you're buying sandalwood you mean sandalwood essential oil i am i mean sandalwood essential oil yeah 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 exactly so fortunately sandalwood essential oil it takes it takes a long time to distill essential oil it takes a lot of money to distill an essential oil uh, there's a lot of energy involved so more often than not, uh, an Australian sandalwood oil, which is Santalum spicatum, um, is from a legitimate source. It okay. just, um, it's, you'd have to, it would have to, poached wood would have to leave the, the country, which it can do, end up in a distiller in some, somewhere who's illegal, and then enter into a brand. And I think that brand would look pretty dodgy. Um, and you pretty know it. But if you stick to good, reputable brands that have been around there and have a wide variety of uh, products in their portfolio or come from legitimate companies, then more often than not, you're going to get Australian sandalwood that's, that's okay. Oh, good. Because I would like to say, please do not buy on Amazon if you don't have to. Yeah, <laughs> the things like that. You, you go, go to a health food store and talk to the people. People do. And, That's why I just say, you know, just do not get your essential oils on Amazon, please. Yeah, well, it's like a roll of a dice, isn't it? Could you tell people a little bit about what it takes to even grow these sandalwood trees, these precious Santalum spicatum? Yeah, yeah. So it's amazing. It's so different. It is. It is truly amazing. I, Sandalwood and all the species are like this, but spicatum is a um, what's known as a hemiparasitic species. So it it needs a host tree okay. to survive. Um, so a sandalwood sapling out of a, a nut would grow, and it its small root would grow towards another tree, um, and then would tap its root into their root system. Sandalwood trees generally aren't that deep rooted compared ah. to a lot of other trees. So it would grow into a, its root system needs to connect to another species, has deep roots that it allows it to get a lot of, get its water, get its nutrients and, and then grow from there. So you need a host tree. So in a plantation environment, now we have in our sandalwood oil, we have uh, wood that comes from primarily two sources. We have it from wild harvested, um, in the wild in controlled harvesting areas and managed harvests. And then we get it from plantation as well. There's p- large tracts of plantation in the um, in Western Australia of Santalum spicatum and a sister company to us, West uh, WA Sandalwood Plantations, 
um, they have these plantations. So you see these, these rows and thousands and thousands of acres of sandalwood growing with their host tree alongside it. Um, and so it takes probably, we start distilling things around, the trees around about 15 years old um, in a controlled plantation where there's in higher rainfall areas where we have here, we can get good oil coming out of trees that are 15 years old. So we grow them, manage those, those areas. The, um, the benefit to the land is, is sensational because it's usually degraded land that has had large tracts of ag agriculture on it for many, many years. And having deep-rooted species of the host tree and the sandalwood trees um, improves overall soil health, reduces salinity, and there's a lot of ecological benefits. You know, it creates a lot of native habitats for native tree uh, animals and flower fauna and fauna. Um, and and so we can get these big areas of uh, of forestation where trees can grow to their maturity. So we're looking at you know, 15, 20 years old now and start to distill those. But in the wild, it's a lot longer um, and there needs to be a little bit more management from a, uh, in a wild sense because they don't get as much rain in the desert areas mm. north of where the plantations are. Um, and uh, so those trees take a long time to grow. So I think you're probably looking at 30, 50 years before we can um, harvest again. And, uh, and you know, trees, those trees could live up to 250 or 300 years old. Um, wow. And the, and the traditional ownership, stewardship practices of managing those forests uh, cannot be underestimated. Um, I know that... Our, the guys that harvest with that we work with, Clinton Farmer is one of the owners of Dutch Iron Sandalwood Oils, and he does the harvesting. Um, and he used traditional knowledge that was passed down to him from his father, who was first contact um, Martu man. So he was he met um, he came out of the desert in the '60s, I think it was. Uh, and so Clinton learned from Kenny how to look after land. Well, the, the land sort of speaks to him, as he says. Uh, and so he only harvests the trees in a certain area of a certain size. He doesn't harvest the big ones, which he calls the mother trees. Mm. Um, and he looks after those. And some of those are big, impressive, beautiful trees. Um, and he just takes the ones which we think um, will produce good oil, but not disrupt the land. Okay. So it's a real process of getting sandalwood and, and to grow sandalwood, it's, it's quite tricky. Sounds like you need a lot of patience. Patience. Yes. <laughs> patience. Yeah, Which that patience. oil does, it, when you smell the oil, it, it does give you that patience, doesn't it? It kind of admits that in a way. I agree. Um, and, and even to distill it too, okay, it takes multiple days of steam distillation. It's not just done in a day like some... Um, um, lavender or those or tea tree or smaller uh, herbs um, it takes multiple multiple days and it's slow process and uh, yeah patience that's a good word so let's talk about your company mm -hmm. dutch and do i say correctly dutch and sandalwood yeah. um dutch on like dutch on um, yeah dutch on i always say people like it's like um you know, the Netherlands, the Dutch, um, ah. Dutch Arn. Um, so Dutch Arn is a Matu and Wongai word 
for sandalwood. So it's her traditional word. Oh, I love that. Um, so that's why we, well, it's called Dutchan sandalwood oils. It's a 50% indigenous owned company. One of the first in the world, I think. Is it the only one? Uh, no, I think there's only one in sandalwood. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So 50% indigenous ownership, equal representation at a board level. Um, it, it's built uh, to help Indigenous people and to grow the company. So it's been around for a couple of years now um, and delivers a triple bottom line to Indigenous people through um, dividends paid to board members, um, profit sharing. Uh, and we also contribute significant uh, financial benefits to an, an Indigenous foundation called the Ken Farmer Dutchan Foundation. I spoke about Kenny Farmer. So Clinton and um, other, other Aboriginal people, Katina Law, especially Darren Farmer, uh, pay, uh, created this foundation with this as a mandate to try and assist impoverished Indigenous people. Unfortunately, Indigenous Australians, especially in this part of Australia, uh, are marginalised and suffer quite a lot and uh, uh, from the, the hands of since colonisation, uh, there's a lot of problems in Aboriginal communities, which are in sandalwood country. So there's a sandalwood foundation that's been set up and Dutch Island Sandalwood Oils or DSO supports that foundation to help people in that communities, those communities. So we're doing, we've got a lot of projects on to try and help out there on the ground, which is kind of crazy in a first world country like Australia, I must admit, but that's the nature. And I think there's a lot of people around the world understand that. Um, after living in America, people understand Indigenous people have a hard time and yeah. through North America and everywhere, Indigenous everywhere. people have a time. So Dutch on Sandalwood was set up um, and we helped with the foundation and that, that was recognised We um, by the United Nations. Uh, Dutch Island Sandalwood Oils won the United Nations Equator Prize um, for a nature-based economy. A great recognition of the work that we're doing. Um, very proud of that. Uh, and so we distill essential oils. We sell those essential oils primarily into the fine fragrance perfumery market uh, around the world. So we uh, registered with nearly all of the top fragrance houses in the world, um, whether it be retail or, or the fragrance houses themselves. Um, and we sell into them as well as some local great um, companies like ESOP in Australia who use essential oils um, in their products. So how do you how do you guys approach sustainability and conservation? Is there a specific approach that you have? It is. It's, there's two parts to it. I said that we have the plantation side, which is a managed forest. We have PFC uh, certified plantations. Uh, buy wood from those plantations and they're uh, managed forests uh, which are done in, in, in a sustainable way. And then we have the wild harvest, which is through government wild harvested um, wood, um, which we're encouraging better practice to the government, which have their own replant and management. It's not just ripped out of the ground and then forgot about, but there are replacement stocks of seeds that go into the ground and, and manage. And then what I think is a, a, a best practice, which is traditional ownership or traditional stewardship managed uh, areas, which we uh, work with um, 
Matu people in uh, the Gibson Desert area, with Clintons harvesting off those native title areas uh, under tr traditional stewardship practices that I mentioned earlier. So we very much um, work from a um, own traditional owner's way of doing things and how to look after the land. And with that constant thought, the sustainability is forever. So when you're dealing with people who've been here forever, uh, it's the oldest continuous uh, culture on the planet. Uh, where people first met um, white people in, you know, the 1950s and 60s and the last of the nomads came out in the 1970s. Um, you have this old continuous relationship to the land in which they, they come from and are interconnected uh, and know how to look after it. So we want to pursue that and to learn from people who have uh, been on this land for so long uh, and who in their absolute DNA is sustainability for the next future uh, generations. Um, yeah. And that's how we're trying to explore that in more detail. And working with academics as well and universities, uh, Richard McClellan is a, is a great academic, he's working in the sustainability field and, and, and listens to Indigenous people. Um, in universities and helping um, how we keep this field going uh, for ongoing, which has so many social and economic and environmental benefits um, beyond sandalwood. And that's our approach. And we like to um, promote that. I, I think it's so wonderful. That's so glad you mentioned all of that. I wanted my listeners to really get to know your your company and i hope they'll check it out more i'll put more information in the show notes um, so they can check out your company even further it's such a wonderful thing you do so thank you for doing thank what you, you do. <laughs> welcome i wanted to finish with three questions i always like to ask my guests i sent them to you ahead of time so you had some time to think about them maybe mm -hmm. maybe not <laughs> So I thought we could go through those briefly. Um, let me ask you, first of all, what's your favorite smell right now? Any smell, any, any smell in the world, what are you enjoying right now? Um, yes, great question, because um, as I said, as we first started, I talked about sense of smell as guiding me as much visual or auditory a sensorial touch um there's so many smells that come at me from a day-to-day -day basis that I'm, <laughs> I'm sure yeah. i'm so uh, it's kind of like chasing butterflies sometimes you know, oh there's another one <laughs> there's another one. Oh, there's another one another you're one. very in tune with, with your sense of smell i can tell oh it's, it's terrible good. i can't walk into a restaurant and if it doesn't smell right i have to leave my wife <laughs> hates it um if i don't like the cleaning chemicals whatever anyway so yes i digress what i really like now i'm i'm fascinated by what we're trying to working on upcycled um research and development so we're taking the what we call the spent charge ah. um which is the the chips that we've used to distill the essential oil and what's left over um and i'm trying to extract the last bits and i've smelled this and then these these amazing woody gourmand uh 
aromas coming out of that. And I'm trying to capture that, um, whether it be fenugreek, maple, coffee, um, soy-like aromas that are coming out of some of the uh, different parts of the, of the supply chain, whether it be spent from distillation or through the grinds that are coming out of the plantations um, that ha are covered in dirt. Um, and if you think about some of the atars with uh, miti atars and so forth that are distilled sandalwood with, with clay and so forth, there's those sorts of things on the fringes of what's nice and what's not nice, um, and which, you know, perfumers love, you know, indoles right. uh, are not exactly lovely when you smell them, but they're amazing when used judiciously. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of enthralled with the things that people consider waste i consider beauty so oh i like that focused on the moment. wonderful wonderful so do you have a favorite scent memory that you can recall i know you gave yeah. me lots of memories but you have one i did but there is one i'm i used to when i was younger with my friends uh, um we used to go down to the southwest of Tasmania, which is the little island off the bottom of Australia, which has the most, some of the most beautiful nature that I've ever, ever seen. And hiking through some of those forests, you might be 10 days deep in hiking where you haven't seen anyone for days and days. Some of these beautiful, tall, thick forests down there have this um, absolute mosaic of smells where be hue and pine or different eucalyptus or celery top pine or these low understory species these native mints um or this tall beautiful sassafras smells um and then myrtles and all sorts of these things and i remember walking through that with this dappled light and the soft sounds um and crazy little furry kangaroo type thing wallaby things bouncing around and then you have these just this kaleidoscope as i said before this cacophony of different smells that are all around you with species that are so ancient because it was is kind of linked to gondwana land and, and, and patagonia from previous before the um the world was broken up you can almost imagine a brontosaurus bending down and chomping on some of these ancient species of, of trees where they don't have uh, a central vine in, uh, spine in their leaf, but it's a split like a ginkgo type shape. And, and those smells that you think have been around before we've probably evolved as the humans as we are today, um, and I'm smelling them now, that, that will will be with me forever. So wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Last question. What would you say are five smells that best describe you? Yeah, I mean, this one is so hard. <laughs> one. Oh, um, Everyone struggles with this one. I just want, just be creative, have fun with it. It's not like it has to be all essential oils. It's whatever. It could be the smell of hair. I don't know, whatever you want it to be. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because this describes you because it, that question is introspection. That's um, right. <laughs> and I know what you're doing. Um, and that means it's what I think about myself, but also what I'd like to convey to the world um, because this is a public podcast. 
Um, so I bounced around with a few ideas. And then from, from me, I think, I, I think I said, number one, well, it could be sandalwood. Um, you? Yeah. That's, <laughs> right. you know, because of what I do um, and how I've loved it in formulation, how it, it sits back in the background and does the work. It's not an overt for, um, ingredient in a formulation. It's very hard to have sandalwood stand out as the primary ingredient within a fragrance. It is what brings things together in the background and makes the beauty. So to me, I think I'm not, I'm not a out the front type person. I'm more someone who's trying to get things done in the background, um, but hopefully done in a way that creates such harmony um, for multiple benefits. So I think that's something. I think vetiver with its earthy grounding beauty with these bitter facets that you don't know really if you like them or not um, is something I also associate with. I think narrowly orange flower because it's, it's so aspirational. I'm always trying to do something more. Um, I don't know if that's counter to being in the moment of oneness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always thinking of something as better, but to me, Neroli is the most exquisite scent that any citrus blossom, orange flower blossom especially, is so exquisite that it is beauty personified. Um, and I would love to get to that section, that's that place of perfection. Um, I think bergamot, because it's flexible. Bergamot can be anywhere and do anything. And it's one of those things that you'd love to place with it. And it brightens everything. Um, and it just adds so much. I'd love to be Bergamot, that I'd be being able to go anywhere and do anything and help anyone. And it will be always beneficial and always a benefit, never a detractor. So Bergamot. But however... I think I'm anise, not everyone's favourite. <laughs> I like that. That's your <laughs> that's your crescendo at the top. It's a yeah. anise. <laughs> yeah, it's like that licorice. Um, I heard on it in a song. It's like licorice. Some people just leave it in the bowl. <laughs> But you shouldn't be for everyone, really, right? That's true. I mean, that would just make you a bit bland, right? Right. Yeah. You got to stay yeah. interesting. I, I agree. Yeah. No. yeah. Thank you. Those are wonderful. Thank you for sharing those. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. You're very so... <laughs> welcome. This has been fun. <laughs> no, I want to thank you for coming on. Just is there a way people can connect with you or with and with your company, you and your company, if people want to reach out, what's the best way to connect with you? Is it through LinkedIn? Sure. I, and, uh, well, there's LinkedIn, of course. Uh, it's easy to find me, Guy Vincent in, in LinkedIn. Um, our website, which I've just relaunched, is dutchan.com. So that's D-U-T-J-A-H-N.com. Um, there's obviously a connection to what we do and who we are and how we do it. And then through to me there. So either of those two avenues is quite good. 
Thank you so much for coming on, Guy. It was so wonderful to speak to you. It was a pleasure to get to know you better and to learn more about your company and also about Sandalwood. So thank you for coming on. Ah, you're very much welcome. I mean, this, this is a topic that I can rave about for hours. Anyone who knows me would equally be bored by me raving about the sense of smell and essential oils and, uh, and my clawing crawling clawing grasping after the next thing within this industry so thank you for giving me time to to talk about my favorite topic thank you for joining me on an aromatic life if you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be really helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, falkaromatherapy.com, where you'll find information about workshops, courses, and other programs I offer. And make sure you grab my free audio training, How to Smell to Be Well, which you can download from my website. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.